it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by... Andrew Sather, and Dave Ahern, to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 73. Tonight, Andrew and I are going to talk about Wall Street study pitfalls. This is based on a book that Andrew is a big fan of by James O'Shaughnessy. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the potential pitfalls that you may run into. So we're going to start off by talking about data mining. And I think the easiest way that I could explain this was a metaphor that uh, James used in the book. And he talked about if you're in Grand Central Station, which is obviously a very large place, with lots and lots of people around. If you find a specific area that has, let's say you go into one tube where one of the trains is running and you see 75% of the people there are blonde, then you would be potentially thinking that, hey, everybody in Grand Central Station is 75% blonde. And that's not actually the case. It just happens to be at that particular time, at that particular place that you find that. And so data mining is something that if you're doing studies on different Wall Street things, you, you know, different factors of looking for, let's say you want to buy stocks on a Wednesday every 16th month. Well, you know, that's not necessarily a, that's data mining because you feel like you have to only buy stocks on a Wednesday on the 16th of the month. And that's, it can lead to a lot of pitfalls and okay. Now I, mean, I, stupid. I mean, that's <laughs> no, uh, that's part of, I think having tests that look, at history, you have to be very careful. I think when it comes to studies in general, and I'm sure you can extrapolate this to things outside of Wall Street, and you know, it, it's very easy to take facts and weaponize them and make them sound like basically a way to advance your own agenda, and you can manipulate statistics to to do that. And so, as investors who are looking at studies. We like to talk about all the time on this podcast about how let's learn from history. You know, history might not repeat, it might look different every single time, but we know that there are some core things that are true. History mostly rhymes. That we have bear markets, we have bull markets, we have prosperity, we have 
times where things tighten up, credit expands, credit contracts. Um, these are things that we've observed over time and it's recorded and written history. And so we can kind of see that this is how markets tend to work. This is how human behavior tends to work. And we can come up with a lot of different lessons from how this stuff all kind of works. And we can use it in our investing. Uh, something like data mining, though, is definitely a huge pitfall to be aware of. Like, you know, I, I love that Grand Central Station metaphor. If I were going, you know, let's say I was a tourist to America and the first tourist thing I did was I went to an NBA game, right? And then if I just thought that the players on the court were representative of the entire United States, I would think everybody's above 6'5". Um, and you can do that and see that through a lot of different studies when it comes to Wall Street and you have to be really careful and look with a watchful eye that, hey, there's going to be things that you're going to find out. And this is true whether it's a Wall Street study, whether it's it's something you're kind of embarking on your own. And it's very easy. We talked in a previous episode about biases and how it's very easy for certain things to kind of skew your understanding of how the market really works based on your own skewed perception. Uh, we all view the world through our own unique lens. And so it's our own experiences and our own things and lessons we've learned that is tainting whatever conclusions we're coming up with. It's very important to have a skeptical eye with that. And so on the one hand, how we always talk about, let's look at history, let's learn about it. On the other hand, I think we need to address some of the things that maybe can be a little bit of a too quick of a conclusion and data mining is part of that. When, when, when you mentioned data mining, Dave, uh, I, had something come to mind. It's a really fantastic book and I haven't read it in years. So nobody <laughs> don't come up with pitchforks and start saying that I'm crazy or I'm wrong, whatever. Uh, but I generally remember uh, Martin Zweig's winning on Wall Street. I believe he had a chapter where he talked about some of the, uh, I think it was very similar to that phenomenon, right? About like assigning to a particular day in the week, but I think it had something to do with a particular month. And so there were people who really believed this, that whether it was based on tax reasons, I think it had something to do with like selling off at the end of the year, like in December and, and buying up in, in January, that there was like a lot of years that kind of in parallel showed this trend where uh, it seemed like particular month was a better time to buy or sell. And I think that's a fantastic example of, of taking something like data mining and, and taking these occurrences that might just be coincidence and, and tr really trying to form of an, an investment strategy based off of that, I don't think is very prudent. And I think it's very important to consider and make sure we're not doing that. Like, let's look at the big picture and not look at something so limited like uh, data mining. I, I always, I, I don't know if this is like necessarily the smartest <laughs> approach in the world or not, but I always like to come up with observations, but I also, I always want logic behind it, if that makes sense. So like um, when I looked at the bankruptcies way back in the day and I was, this was before I like completely formulated the value trap indicator 
Um, I was just really looking at a lot of different companies and a lot of different stocks, a lot of different financial statements. And when I chose to look at the bankruptcies, I kind of went, I approached it with uh, a very open mind and I just wanted to see like, are there any similarities, right? Try to try to remove the bias as much as you can. Don't come in with an agenda and say, come with a clean slate and then observe the data yourself and see if there's something that stands out. So when it came to the bankruptcy stuff, I noticed that more than 50% and it ended up being really high, um, but, but definitely more than 50% of these stocks had negative earnings in the year before bankruptcy. And so, A, I saw that and I was like, okay, well, that's obviously seems to be a pretty relevant data point. But B, I started to think about that logically, like what would be the reasoning behind this? You know, is it because Wednesday people are more happy or it's hump day and so they're happy? Does that make sense logically? Whereas with a stock that has negative earnings, well, you think about what, what, why are businesses in business? Why do investors buy stocks? Why, why do they become part owners of business? And what's the, what's the function of a business? It's to create profits, it's to create earnings and it's to pay out dividends. And how do you pay out dividends? You do it from earnings. And so, once I understood that, I was like, okay, that really makes a lot of sense to me. And that's where I can kind of see a relationship with the data making sense and being a practical application that I can use to make a, a conclusion that, hey, I mean, I, I took it all the way, right? Like I, I avoid any stock with negative earnings like the plague, but you know, you don't have to take it to that extreme. You could say, hey, I have this finding that I found from looking at data, I found it to have some sort of significant implication on there's some sort of relationship there. And so at least it's going to make me take a closer look at the stock and understand that um, this is probably something that is in a way more correlated with bankruptcy. So maybe I'm going to keep a more watchful, watchful eye on the stock. And I think you can do that not only with just kind of the way I've done it, but with all sorts of different ways that you try to look at the market, try to look at the history of stocks. And when you're looking at any sort of academic study or anything really that's written in a book uh, or on a blog post, on a news article, these are all things that I think we need to consider and uh, really, really just think from a logic perspective and try to think it through. And, you know, <clears throat> I don't think it needs to be necessarily super complicated either, either, like with the data mining. It's it's pretty simple, you know, it, is it just seem to be like a random thing or maybe is there a possible reason behind it? Just keep that in mind. Excellent. All right. Moving on to the next topic, a limited time period. Andrew, why don't you go ahead and take a stab at that one? Yeah, so when we think of limited time period with the stock market, stocks, investments, it's it's really hard because there's a big disconnect between what happens with investments and our kind of every day-to-day life. You think about um, pretty much anything else, a lot of different things in life, right? Like everything happens super, super fast, especially in this day and age. Um, you want to like you want to have some sort of, let's say a piece of furniture in your house 
you go to the furniture store, you could have it delivered to you the same day, or you could order it online, have it to you in a period of a couple of days. You want to decorate your house completely. You want to have that, like that's a problem and you want to find a solution. You can, you can do that very, very quickly. You can do a lot of different things, pick up a lot of different skills and you can do that almost instantaneously. You can find the answer to anything instantaneously. When it comes to the stock market, and it comes to the way that things have historically appreciated over time, the way that returns have really been made by the market. It's really been a very, very long time period. And when people think of long, long-term investments, they might define it as holding for a year, and and that can feel like an eternity, especially. You know, especially when you're starting out, our podcast is really geared towards people who are beginners. It's it's very, I I can relate 100% because I was there. It, you want to buy stocks and you want to see them pay out, you know, a 100% yield on costs. You want to see that reinvested dividend now. You want to see a portfolio that's appreciated 17% in a year. You want to see that now. You learn about it and you want to implement it right away. And then, the reality of it is is you learn some stuff you you buy a couple stocks and you have to wait and in 2 months you saw the stocks that you thought were such great values go down in value and then you have to wait some more and then maybe in 6 months it's kind of gotten even with where you bought it within a year you're kind of disappointed and maybe moving on and thinking about other things and then finally when you've forgotten about it two and a half years later you finally see the results and and you can see this especially happen with value approaches where you're buying stocks that are hated and they can take a long time to get back to their real intrinsic values. Even two years, three years, five years, 10 years, that in, in the investing world, that's really a small time period. And you can see this if you look at different studies about the stock market in general. Uh, I'm in the middle of a great book right now. It's called, it's called Bull. I want to say there's, <laughs> there has to be more to it. Um, the side of the book is, says it's Bull with an exclamation point. It's by Maggie Mahar, um, and she really just kind of breaks down the history. She comes at it from a journalistic approach, which I think is it's cool, makes it fun to read. Um, but she goes through a lot of the history of the stock market, a lot of the history of some of the bull markets we've seen and has some data in there too, which is really fun to follow. And I mean, she kind of takes, I feel like she doesn't really concentrate enough on like reinvested dividends and and how, you know, some of these returns might've been fine for investors who are really in the long term. but it's somewhat of a pessimistic kind of outlook for the book. But it's very interesting to see that there are very many time periods where returns were not what people wanted or expected, or even you would argue maybe were even worthwhile. You can look at the Japanese stock market. They still haven't recovered from the 80s, right? And so um, you can take different time periods within the United States history where a five or 10 year period, the stock market either broke even or the stock market lost money. And so you can, understanding that, you can take the same approach to any sort of study that's looking at any metric or any kind of conclusion, any business 
detail that they're observing any anything really um it's 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 just you know it, it's something that the stock market and returns they take a very long time you have to look at things through averages um and you have to understand that these average returns that people talk about i talk about right 10 percent a year these things are over very very long time periods and not uh there's no guarantee that just because you're looking at a five-year time period that that's going to be something that ends up being what you're looking for or the kind of result is guaranteed it's it, it it's important when you're looking at these things to to not have those sorts of expectations up front again i'll i'll say uh don't take that as something negative i think a lot of good can happen even in time periods where the market kind of goes flat or negative. Um, when you're reinvesting dividends, when your dollar cost averaging, a lot of that stuff doesn't really matter. And we talk about it a lot. And I hope that doesn't get lost. However, when you're looking at a study that's that's examining companies with certain growth rates or, or examining... Uh, certain business characteristics or certain trends, right? Like momentum kind of comes to mind, trend following comes to mind. Any of these things can do really, really well. Uh, maybe a volatility index does really, really well for a certain number of years. Something based on the interest rate could do very well for for five years. A commodity thing could do well for five years. These, A lot of things can do really, really well, and that doesn't re- necessarily represent a reliable long-term return for the average investor. So again, like be very skeptical, be wary of something that's looking at a very short time period. <laughs> As I always do, right? I guess something that you could say in 10 seconds, I said in five minutes, but I hope that was helpful. And something that keep in mind too, when you look at these studies, do not limit yourself to making some sort of conclusion just because it's had success. It, it really needs to be something more like the Taurus and the hair where it's consistent and long-term and not something that just happened to have a hot streak, maybe happened to have a, a lucky kind of run or for whatever the political or the business climate was that it, that strategy happened to do well. It really needs to be something that's, that's much more longer and substantial than that. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. Is my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. 
Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. I agree, and I think those are all great points, and no, you are not you are not going on too long. Um, I thought that that was really good, and I guess one thing that I'd like to maybe tag off of what you were saying was when you're looking at a limited time period, I like to think of it as, so you guys all know I'm a baseball fan. So, uh, Andrew and I play fantasy baseball. Well, one of the things that sometimes you can fall into with fantasy baseball is you can get wrapped up in a guy that's having a hot streak and maybe he's playing really well for a two month period and you get wrapped up into this particular player. And so you put him on your team expecting that to continue. And, if he doesn't have a history of that, let's say the guy has played in the league for five or six years, and this is the moment in time where he's actually lived up to his potential for a couple months, you have a choice of deciding at one point, at some point, whether that is actually going to continue and he's made changes in his approach that allow him to be successful and allow his talent to shine through, or if it's just a matter of he just got hot for a little bit of time and his athletic talent is just taking over and it's not really an improvement. And when you look at that, you also have to look at underlying factors that maybe are causing this to happen. Like, you know, in in baseball geek terms, maybe he's hitting a lot of balls and they're all falling in for hits, which is unusual. And that's not normal for him. You know, maybe he strikes out a lot. Not right now. He's not striking out a lot. There's a lot of different factors that can go into that. And, so when you're looking at a, at a stock, you also have to think about a company that you're going to buy. You have to try to look at, like Andrew was talking about, you have to look at a, a long enough time period that you can establish a pattern and a history of what the company has been able to do with their performance. And if you get caught up into a shorter time period, because you're going into it with a bias, when you're looking at six months, a year, a year and a half, there may be other factors like Andrew was you know, mentioning with the political factors, the economic factors that are causing that company at this particular time to perform better than they maybe should have or normally would have. Let's say management has changed or not changed. I mean, these are all different factors you have to take into account when you're looking at why something is happening. And if you look at 
a longer time period, it's going to give you more of a consistency of why this is happening. And, you know, you can take any company you want and there's going to be ebbs and flows, of course, throughout the, the time period. And, you know, let's talk about, you know, real quickly, let's talk about Microsoft, for example. You know, Microsoft's been around for a long time. And when they first came out, they were kind of the darling of the stock market. They were kind of the leaders of the tech world. And then for a while, things shifted and they were not. They were kind of boring and they were kind of a, you know, kind of not a has been. That's maybe not the right word for it, but they were maybe forgotten a little bit and they were kind of ignored and they weren't really looked upon as a leader in the industry. And over the last few years, they've, you know, had management changes and they've done some different things to try to invigorate the company again. And they've seen success. Of course, the stock market has, you know, embraced everything they're doing. And it's, you know, the, the price is, you know, quadrupled uh, in the last four or five years. Now, does that mean that necessarily the company is worth that price? Those are all their cons- consequences and considerations you have to take into account. But if you look over the long history of the company, they've been a good company. They've done a good job. Is it worth the price it is now? That's for another discussion for another day. But I think what I'm trying to get at is you need to look at a long period of time to understand. You can't just cherry pick, you know, hey, this stock is doing great for the last year and a half. I'm going to buy it now. And it may be doing great for a year and a half because of other reasons. And that's why you have to always make sure that you you know, do your due diligence and check all the different factors that could be, you know, causing this to happen. Just like with a baseball player, you got to pay attention to what's causing that, you know, just because the guy had a great two months last year, doesn't mean he's made changes that are going to continue and allow him to continue that for, you know, the rest of the year. It happens all the time, every year. And it's just, it's part of the fun of the sport. And it's, you know, it's also part of the challenge with investing with stocks. I love that you brought up Microsoft too. I mean, I remember when I got in, the stock was flat for years. And, you know, people were worried about the iPhone and Apple completely taking over everything. Right. And then after the stock does well, then people are like, well, obviously Microsoft was going to be fine. They're in every business computer. So it's like the narrative is constantly changing depending on how the stock did the year prior. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Hey, you. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. All right, moving on to the next one. We got microcap stocks allowed. Andrew, why don't you touch on that? Sure. So there, there'll be some studies. And uh, again, these major points we're, we're getting from James O'Shaughnessy's book. Uh, but sometimes you'll see back tests or, or studies showing data and um, including super small stocks, micro cap stocks, maybe stocks that people wouldn't have normally considered. And so if, if you can't reasonably consider it, then uh, it shouldn't really be made to, it shouldn't be used to make a conclusion. There can be stocks with uh, market caps that are so small that whether you're an institutional investor, you know, institutional investors have certain requirements on, uh, what size of a stock you can jump in into what what size of a stock you can even buy there can be liquidity issues we talked about in our back to the basics series how the the core function of the stock market and the way that stock prices work is uh, a series of buys and sells and if there's no buyers on one side there's sellers on the other side liquidity is really 
not there, then it can make it very difficult to execute trades or, or you'll get weird spreads. A lot of different problems with that. Um, and, and a lot of, you know, I, I've, like a lot of uh, institutional managers just based on the way that their funds are structured, they just can't buy into a lot of these micro cap stocks. So it's, it's, it's almost like the, the findings won't apply to you if, if you can't implement them. Right. And, and you can say this similarly with the retail or the average investor. If it's, if they're including stocks that are like over the counter traded, how many of us are really going to go and buy a stock that's not on the NYSE or is not on the NASDAQ? I think to, to, to use those results, now all of a sudden you've kind of muddled the water, made it, made it all dirty. And so it could skew the results because a micro cap stock here or there could really be driving a lot of the returns that you might see. And so it might make a certain strategy look better than another just solely based off one or two outliers that are really carrying the results. And I think just in general, you can see a lot of volatility with microcap stocks. I personally try to stay away from microcap as much as I can. Um, I guess not even try, right? Like I'll do it in the fund money account, but when it comes to my IRAs, my retirement, my, my money that matters, I don't, generally go over two billion in market I mean under two billion. Uh maybe I'll dabble in like anything above a billion, but definitely nothing below a billion dollars. I'm definitely not getting into the micro cap kind of capitalization space. Um and, and for a lot of those reasons, you have to think too when it comes to a market that's so in its infancy and growth stage. Uh, when when these these companies are so small that their their stocks are trading at such low market capitalizations that they're not even above a billion dollars, a lot of these industries are just very just just barely beginning, and it's it's going to be a you know it's going to be maybe one of two things: a the market's so young that any little thing can happen to make one person kind of come to the top, and it's going to be it's going to be unpredictable, and and you know past past financial results are not going to be as in indicative <laughs> in the indicative of future results when 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 things are so rapidly changing or b um the stock could be such a small fish in a big pond that they're so small and there's such other big competitors that they could a competitor could sneeze and it could really wipe a, a stock out. And so with a lot of volatility where you could see like a, a hundred bagger, you can also see a lot of just wreckage that could happen with a lot of these micro cap stocks. So a lot of different reasons and, and that's something you're gonna have to be wary of, right? Like what where is this data set coming from? What stocks is this study looking at and are they excluding micro cap stocks? Are they and uh, O'Shaughnessy? They they do a lot of uh, great research reports that they'll they'll publish, especially lately. And they have done their back tests and their studies to account for micro cap considerations, liquidity problems, stuff like that. But you you want to keep that with uh, a vigilant eye. And, and even when you're reading like a blog post or an article. You know, they might cite some academic study, but if you don't go and actually click on the academic study and see 
what kind of data sets going in while well, you have garbage in garbage out if 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 micro cap stocks are skewing the results and it's really making something that hits your bias but might might be concluding something that could be not useful for the average investor then it could be something that really leads you to making poor decisions in the future so it's definitely just another thing to keep in mind yeah i really like that that's a that's a great way to put that all right so next one we got that survivorship bias. Andrew, why don't you go ahead and take a stab at that? I know that's one of your favorites. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll keep it short this time because we've definitely covered this before. But when you look at a back test, right, it just doesn't make sense. If you look at 2018 stocks and you look at stocks that were there in 1998, you can look at all the stocks that are there in 2018. They're all alive, right? It's obvious, but if you don't account for the stocks that went bankrupt, you don't account for stocks that maybe got acquired, then you're not looking at what really happened. So you want to make sure that when there's any sort of study, any sort of back test, that they're accounting for survivorship bias. And this is very easy to do. All you got to do is pick a stock. Let's say Apple. Apple crossed a trillion dollars. Well, that must be a great stock. So let's look at it in 1998. Let's see what it did. And whatever it did in 1998, that's what we should do, right? No, wrong. That, that would be a terrible way to go because of survivorship bias, because there could have been five stocks back in 1998 that looked exactly like Apple. Um, but Apple just happened to be the one stock that beat all the rest because it had such a game-changing product like the iPhone. So that's something to definitely keep in mind. Make sure you're looking at and you're accounting for survivorship bias because there can be data sets, right? Like we we could do it right now just going on Google. You can you can take all 500 stocks of the S&P 500 today. You can put them on the spreadsheet and then you can and you know, I've done I've done stuff like this before where I'll I'll take a group of stocks and then I will look at what their past was. But you also have to consider that these are the stocks that are still alive. There could have been other stocks back in, let's say, 1998 that looked this that looked the same, but you won't see them today because they're now dead, right? And and either they they got acquired, they're and their name changed, or they just straight went bankrupt. So you always want to be accounting for survivorship bias. Make sure that any study that you are trying to draw conclusions from. Anything, any research you're doing on your own, it's accounting for survivorship bias, and you will make much better conclusions if you do that. That was excellent. I really like the way you put that. And one of the ways that I think about this is think about your own personal portfolio. Let's say that you have a company that's doing very poorly, and you decide to sell the company. And then you look at your returns and all of a sudden they go from, let's say, I'll just pick a number, 25%. And now all of a sudden, because you dumped the company that's dragging you down, all of a sudden you're at 38%. And you're like, sweet, I'm kicking butt. This is awesome. But you can't really take that into account because you had that other company that you invested money in that lost money that, you know, that was down from where you bought it. So that really, it has to be considered into the study when you're looking at it, because when you're looking at your own personal return, you put your money in there, you put a hundred dollars in there and it went down to, 
$72, well, you lost 28 bucks. You're not getting that back, even though your personal account may show that it's higher now because you removed that other company. So the same thing applies to, you know, these stock market studies that can be done if they do not account for, you know, such and such a company going bankrupt or, you know, being negative for a long time or being swallowed up by another company. Those all things can affect the overall return and can buy it, make a bias for you about that study. And so that's important to consider those ideas when you're thinking about this. Yeah, 100%. I like that. Um, that parallel to like the practicality of how we might do it ourselves. Anybody might do that very, very easily, even if you're not like an academic looking at studies. Yep, I agree. So, all right, the next one uh, we're going to talk about is look-ahead bias. Yeah, and the last one, too. I think it's going to be a great... I think um, Jim just kind of put this perfectly. So he said, you can assume that fundamental information was available when it was not, and that can be a big drawback. So, for example, if you have a study that's looking at, well, I was going to buy companies that had certain earnings this year and then I was going to buy at the first of the year, right? Um, if if in reality, so he says like, assuming you had annual earnings data in January, but in reality, the data might not be available until March, then that's going to bias your results. And that makes sense too, right? Because if you can't look at, it, if the information wasn't available, but maybe whatever computer set or data set you're looking at isn't taken into account when everybody's annual reports are being released, then that can, you know, you might be getting into a stock a year or a couple months early. Every stock will report their earnings differently. I keep a spreadsheet. This helps keep me organized when it comes to figuring out when I need to update, update my kind of views on, on where every stock I own is going. You'll have stocks that will release their annual reports in January, February, March, almost every year. Um, some of them might do, might have, might share years, but share months. I'm sorry, but um, it's all going to vary, and and it's something to keep in mind. And you want to make sure that you're not making mistakes like that. For example, when I looked at again back to the bankruptcy data. I made sure to only look at what was available on sec.gov. To my knowledge, and from what I've kind of what I've taken from what I've seen from people um, in other books and stuff, they they talk about having to either use like a CompuStat or maybe a Bloomberg terminal or going and actually. Um, buying annual reports, the SEC, like before sec.gov, which is a website. If you're a beginner and you're not, you're not aware of this, it's a website where you can look at, you can pull up any company's financial information and 10 K AKA annual report. Um, pretty much all the way back to like 1994 or 1995. But before that website was uh, up and running, you had to, call a company you had to maybe pay five ten twenty i don't know what what the amount was i wasn't i wasn't in the stock market back then but however much the money was you had to pay it in order to get access to these annual reports these 10ks and so when i did my research on the bankruptcy data i made sure that it was all available on sec.gov 
because that would be something that is kind of uh would have been readily available for somebody who might have been either buying these stocks or getting out of them before they went bankrupt, right? You always want to make sure that whatever's happening in the future is not kind of affecting what your possibilities would have been. Like it would not be fair for me to look at a stock that's already bankrupt because you know they'll file annual reports and 10Ks even after bankruptcy because I mean, I don't really know what the reason is, but I don't know whether it's because they're settling debts with bondholders or um, whatever reason the government's making them file 10Ks even after the bankruptcy. It wouldn't be fair to me to to say that I'm doing research or, or I'm trying to figure out what's happening with certain stocks that happen. What what kind of lessons can I make from the past? And taking like annual reports that happened after the bankruptcy. If I'm really being fair and honest and sincere with with uh trying to keep all the data as as accurate and as conclusion bearing as i can well then i would be looking at 10ks that happened after the bankruptcies and not before and so that's kind of what i did made sure any 10k i looked at was prior to the bankruptcy and not after any bankruptcy filing had happened and so you can really try to get a sense of what investors were feeling at the time and you can't replicate it perfectly. I don't think any study can really do that 100%. But if you can try to do that as much as you can, and if a study's not doing that, um, it might be kind of hard to catch, but it's definitely something to keep in mind. I mean, it only makes sense, right? Like if the annual report's not available till September, uh, but you're buying it in January because you have this study that's, buying a certain criteria every year they're not accounting for that nine months that the stock could have appreciated because in reality investors are uh maybe they're getting quarterly reports this is maybe more relevant today where we have information that's just coming at us every second and quarterly reports are analyzed like they're the holy grail of investing and wall street but you know there could have been three months of quarterly reports that really showed that this would be a really strong year. But if you're an investor who only buys off annual reports and 10Ks, kind of like the way I am, then it wouldn't be fair for me to backtest a strategy where I'm buying before those nine months happen, before those three annual or these those three quarterly reports can kind of uh, make their move. You know, I'm getting like a free kind of gain inside those nine months. And that's just not fair and that's just not realistic. And that's not something that you can reliably replicate in the future. So you want to try to put yourself put yourself into the shoes of somebody who's like in the past. Try to eliminate as many kind of deterrents. And I think that's really the whole point of this episode. Try to limit anything that can really cloud the decision making that you would make in the past. Really just put yourself in the shoes of somebody who with whatever data they had available in front of them at the time would look at that data and make a reasonable decision on what they would do with the stock in the future. And when you're looking at the past, try to do that as much as possible. And if you can, like I'm becoming more of a history buff. Like the more I get into this investing stuff where I used to, I don't know about you, but like in high school I would just sleep through history class because it was just so boring to me. 
but like as an investor trying to get a gauge of how just the cultural kind of pulse was and and what the temperature was like and, and how people really felt and what kind of influences were really affecting their decision making i think it makes for a really cool kind of deeper understanding of what it would be like to be an investor at that time and how much conviction you would need to really make the types of decisions that would lead to long-term success in the stock market because it's so easy to plug in an algorithm and um, just assume that we can all act like robots and just invest on these one or two criteria or metrics. It's much, much harder to actually do what that what what the right thing would be at the time a lot of value investing is is going against the grain, going against the crowd, being an contrarian investor and buying low and selling high. And that's a lot harder to do in reality than in theory. And I think that's something that when you're taking lessons from the history of stocks in the stock market, if you can account for that as much as you can, then you can really separate the wheat from the chaff and, and really clean out the most important and valuable lessons from history and use that in your best ability to to really help your results moving forward. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our discussion tonight. I hope you enjoyed our conversation about Wall Street study pitfalls. I thought Andrew had some fantastic points tonight and really kind of hit the nail on the head about all the different biases and different things that we need to take into consideration when we're looking at studies and how they can affect our investment decisions. This is something you really need to think about when you're considering a company to buy. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.